The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is really about a lot of different mindfulness issues, and we are going to be talking about this wonderful book that I've just been reading called A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment. And we've talked a lot about mindfulness, and this is just such a beautiful book. The author is Spring Washam, and there's a foreword by Jack Kornfield. And let me tell you a little bit about Spring, this beautiful woman, and her brand new first book. Spring Washam is a founding member and core teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center in California, and she is a well-known meditation and Dharma teacher, and she's based in Oakland, California. Her teachings focus on social action and multiculturalism. Her stories and studies, combined with her enthusiasm, charisma, and energy, create a refreshing take on meditation and mindfulness genre. So we're just really thrilled to have her. You can find out more about her at our website at conflicthealing.com. And you can also find out more about her at her own website, which is Spring Washam, that's spelled S-P-R-I-N-G-W-A-S-H-A-M.com. So thank you so much, Spring, for joining us on this very special day. Thank you, Mari. It's, I'm happy to be with you. So this beautiful book, So how, let's talk about how you named this book. Why is this called A Fierce Heart? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things that I've discovered in the last 20 years of working with not only my community in Oakland, but meditation communities from all over the world There's something that calls on us to be fierce, to open to the truth of the moment. You know, we all have our stories and our difficulties and our trauma. And as you try to, you know, walk a spiritual path, you have to reconcile all these things within yourself and to take an honest look, you know, in 12-step, they say you have to do an honest inventory for all my 12-step friends. I would say the inventory is so hard, and it takes a fierceness to show up and to be courageous and honest and to live in the present moment. And so the book was sort of an anthem of my own story and other people's stories and 
and living a life that is rooted in compassion and love, it's hard. It takes a strength to love all beings and ourselves. So that's why I named it A Fierce Heart. And it's a unique title um, because it's a fierce compassion, fierce love. And, yeah, it kind of calls on us to a higher a level and a courage, you know, a willingness to open to things how they are. Right. And sometimes, you know, the name of this show is called Fighting for Love. And sometimes we really have to fight against anything in ourselves fiercely that, you know, mm-hmm. fight against anything that keeps us from getting the love and the compassion that we want in our lives, right? It just keeps us from that. And so having a fierce heart to just stay on that path of mindfulness and oneness and yeah, it's um, it's hard because we've got these brains that uh, have a primitive brain that gets in the way, <laughs> you know. Exactly. <laughs> so we have to try and kind of get above that with our higher self. So, you know, you were talking about stories, and there are some beautiful stories, and you have your story. So, you know, being that you're from Long Beach down in Southern California, and then you became a shaman from the Amazon and a yoga from the Himalayas. So kind of kind of help us understand how, how that happened. Well, that's a funny story. The, the nickname, the shaman came, the shaman, either way, um, really comes from my teacher, Jack. He used to call me that. And I think what it was is the, the book kind of goes through a lot of different stages in my life. And for a long period of time, I used to do many long retreats and I tell stories from those long retreats and some three month retreats, some six month retreats. Um, I spent a year in the jungle, but in my early part of my life, I used to spend a lot of time meditating. And so they used to call me the yogi because I was always going off on these retreats and and I was really misunderstood in those days. You know, my family thought I was weird. And why would you go to these places where you're not talking and you're, you know, you're with these people in silence and you're meditating? And there's something really powerful that I, I sort of understood that I had to reconcile my own mind and healing my mind. And so um, when I was very young in my early 20s, I got very into meditation And so that became a way for me to understand suffering, to understand my emotions. And so I got the nickname, the Yogi, Yogini from there. And then about eight years ago, just to link the the shaman part, I, to kind of work with my trauma, I ended up meeting a healer and started going to Peru. And I was working in the jungle and understanding, working sort of with uh, natural different plants and healing modalities. And and I got a lot, a lot of healing to um, help me deal with trauma. And trauma is a big thing that comes up now, not only in meditation communities, but post-traumatic stress and chronic fatigue and as these stories of um, what people have endured, you know, childhood experiences, abuse, that leaves a very strong impact. And so I'm someone who's very interested in healing trauma, often working in communities and um, not only indigenous communities, but inner city communities. How to heal trauma is a very, very important topic of how we move forward in our spiritual life and how we open. 
so those two threads, you know, working in the jungle and then years kind of in meditation centers and, and retreats and travels, they kind of gave me this nickname. So, oh, I love so it's it. kind of a, a little bit of a joke, too. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, and we think about trauma, it, you know, our own childhood traumas, and we think about these guys coming back from wars, especially like mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq and all the people who've gone through trauma, whether it was 9-11 or it was Las Vegas or, you know, Texas or wherever, um, there's a lot of trauma going on. So we do need to really address that and soothe it uh, and reset our brains so that we can be positive and, and change the world to be a better place. So, you know, you're doing great work. Now, let's talk a little bit about your own childhood. When I was reading about your own childhood and having a a black dad and a white mom and some of the beginning trauma in your own life, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about that and how, you know, you, you know, you, you went through a lot as a, as a little girl and a young woman and um, that I think that shapes us, doesn't it, our, our childhood? Do you want to share a little bit about how this all helped you cultivate your fierce heart? Sure. And I think, you know, and, and at the core of the book and the message of the book is really a message of how we can transform our difficulties or how we use those difficulties in order to grow. You know, had I not had that kind of um, sort of traumatic childhood, I wouldn't be the person I am today and I wouldn't have gone through the different stages and understanding and the development of compassion. There is something important about challenges and difficulties. And so I like to kind of teach from that perspective. But yes, um, you know, growing up was really hard. We were in East Long Beach, Compton border and Bellflower and this apartment building and yeah, and growing up with, um, you know, in two worlds, in my father's world and my mother and, and sort of walking the line, it was really difficult, actually, for me. And understanding who I was became really important as I got into my early teens, sort of reclaiming, like, what is my identity and what 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 matters to me? What world do I want to live in? And so I feel like my childhood of growing up with different cultures, this early thriving African-American side and my other side that is um, the ancestors are German, you know, and, and seeing how to navigate has actually been a gift. But it was hard. You know, and, it's, I think and, it's hard yeah. for a lot of biracial people. And also, you know, when you had, when your dad left when you were three and then, you know, then you have, then, you know, when you were older, then your mother had a, a, an abusive boyfriend that even caused you to run away from home from that. So um, yeah. th- that changed your life, too, didn't it? Yeah, I think having to leave my house was really a pivotal moment. It was, you know, and, and when we're, you know, I left when I was 15. It just the situation was just so unhealthy and unworkable and violent and so I left yeah I left and came we at that time we were living in uh, northern California and I went back to southern California and that felt like a real claiming of my own life and I I have always had to grow up quickly but that process really matured something in me 
And when you're 15, you don't know a lot. That's the only sad part of it, you know. So you, you, you create a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering. But again, I think what's interesting about the story or about the theme of the book was that even that I used to study psychology, to understand the, the craziness in my own family or the suffering in my own family was always a place where I thought something is going on with our minds. Right. What is happening? Something is going on here. And I, I was really interested in understanding it from a psychological perspective. Right. And, you know, we see people who have overcome such challenges like you. And, uh, you know, when we think about life, when people come in and they've been homeless or they've had a life of crime or whatever, you know, they some people take what they've learned that's been very, very detrimental to their life, the trauma, the violence, whatever it is, and they do like you're doing, is, which is really learning from that situation and, and trying to make things better and having a higher consciousness about it. And then there are those who, I don't know if they're just younger souls or, <laughs> or what it is, but they don't learn. Uh, they they tend to repeat what they've lived rather than to come above it. So I think, you know, your story and stories like this are inspiring because it shows people that they do have choices to think about and to grow and to learn. So I, you yeah. know, I honor you for that. So I think, Thank you. yeah, so then you found Buddhism and, um, you decided that that was, you know, the right path to mindfulness for you. And um, I happen to love Buddhism myself and kind of consider myself just a spiritual person without really claiming anymore a specific religion, but just being, you know, one with spirit and, you mm -hmm. know, attend wherever and feel good about it. So, so tell us about your path to Buddhism. Yeah, that was an interesting one. I definitely hadn't intended on it. Um, when I was in my late teens, I started to get interested in meditation. And then as my years grew on studying psychology, I ended up initially studying with a Hindu teacher. And I remember going to these three-hour meditations, but they never gave me meditation instruction. They would say, just love God. You know, and which is great. I thought, this is a good thing, yes. And I would sit for three hours, and my mind would just go crazy. And after doing that for a year, I was trying to meditate and realizing I was just sitting there thinking about all my problems, I thought, I needed a teacher, yes. You know, and I'd read many spiritual books on meditation, and I was really interested in it. And then just by happenstance, a friend said, hey, there's a 10-day retreat in the desert. They teach you how to meditate. There's vegetarian food, and it's in silence. You should go to this. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they teach you how to meditate. And she said, yes, every day they'll give you teachings, and you can even talk to teachers. And I was so excited. And, of course, my whole life fell apart right before that retreat. Yeah, these things always happen sort of like a, a big storm, you know, when there's a change that's going to happen. And so I went to this retreat, and I, I didn't even know it was Buddhist, and I didn't even know Jack Cornfield was leading it. I just showed up there, and that 10-day retreat really changed my life. And at the end of it, 
you know, I deeply resonated with all the teachings and awareness and compassion and presence and forgiveness and and just the meditation itself, how to live in a present moment. We did hours of walking meditation, sitting meditation. And I remember I felt like I had an enlightenment experience at the end. I went up to this little hill um, out. We were way out in the desert in Yucca Valley, you know, way out in Yucca. And um, I hiked up to this little hill and I said, I will study and practice this teaching until the end. Mm-hmm. I sort of, I sort of um, ordained myself on the hill. And I really was life-changing. I, I immediately did change my life and I began to study and years of practice unfolded after that. Right, right. I know I began meditating in college when, you know, I was a child of the, not a child, but a teenager in the 60s. And then we were all into transcendental meditation in college. So that's how I got into meditation. And I still do it today. I get up at five in the morning and I meditate. And yeah, um, yeah, and I used to do it, you know, 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. But, you know, that was a while ago. And I felt like I had transcended many times. But now I make sure that I get up at five to meditate from five to five twenty, and then I get in the shower and I do all my things. And it's it's really critical for me because I deal with conflict all the time. You know, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> as a, as an attorney mediator, that's where I am in yeah. the midst of conflict. So I have to be that um, the center of the storm. You know, the eye of the storm. Uh, yes. And that helps me to be in that eye of the storm. But I remember back in college reading Siddhartha and getting all excited about, you know, that train of thought and, and Buddhism myself. So now I, I guess you fit those teachings into a modern context and lifestyle. So how do you fit that into what you're doing now? Well, I think what happened out of that, and that, that's a great question, and, and it's amazing the work that you do. I just really honor that path because it's not easy to hold the, the calm place in the eye of the storm and to um, navigate through all the emotions that come with conflict mediation. Yeah, right. so a big bow to you and your, your five o'clock practice. Good for you. That's amazing. Well, I, and, you know, sometimes it's... Uh, it, Sometimes I've got, I'm on it, and sometimes, you right. know, I'm human, and it doesn't work. You know, I'm I'm doing everything I can to get people to at, at that place of centeredness. You know, but they're not all Buddhists. You know, <laughs> if they were, it would be a no, lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, I think what happened for me was out of the years that I practiced, and I write about this in the book, where I spent years traveling and living in places and practicing in centers, that I was A, the youngest person there, I was B, the only person of color, and I was living in downtown Oakland, which was quite colorful, right? And I would go to these communities, and I didn't see my community reflected there, so I thought, well, what about everybody else? You know, the meditation community seemed very affluent, you know, um, and sort of were a little bit removed from my neighborhood, my communities that I lived in and and worked in and served in. And so 
out of years of practice, this idea to start a, a center in downtown Oakland, and we would teach, we'd focus on Buddhism, but we would also, it was mindfulness, you know, right. compassion, self-love. I want to be clear that, you know, people of all faiths can read the book and feel resonant with what we're talking about here is a way of finding stillness. Yes. You know, a way of listening to the heart. You know, it's beyond any religion. What we're doing is deep listening. I I like to also uh, refer to it as that. So we had this idea of starting a center and... And we wanted it to be all donation-based, you know, all just generosity-based economics, the gift economy. We'll say, we'll do it like they do it in Asia. No, mm. you know, no fees. You, anyone can come in. Right. And it's been amazing. We, you know, been there for 10 years, and we grew out of one center and got another one, and it's and we serve literally hundreds of people every week oh. in different classes, workshops. We're 24-7 operation now. Oh my God, that is so wonderful. And I've read articles and um, seen things on videos about bringing mindfulness into prisons, bringing mindfulness Mm -hmm. into homeless shelters, bringing mindfulness into schools. And it just really makes a shift. If we could just do more of that, like what you're trying to do, it just helps these people to see that who they really truly are at their deepest level, right? Yeah. And also, you know, people, all of us, I think, you know, if we look in the world, all of us are learning how to deal with our emotions, you know, and I think for what I teach and what I'm even teaching now, I'm teaching a retreat is how do we deal with our emotion? How do we deal with fear? How do we deal with rage? How do we deal with sorrow, disappointment? And, and then in some way, our culture is very young at learning how to deal with this. We either, as you know, you see this probably all the time in your work. You know, our emotions, we act it out, we suppress it, we feed it. We don't know how to be with it. And I think there's a huge shift back, the potential for us all to grow as a human family is through understanding and becoming much wiser about our emotional landscape. Yeah. And teaching it to young children is key to normalize, to help them understand themselves. So it's a big shift uh, working with mindfulness. And it has a lot of lot of beauty and a lot of power, a lot of wisdom in it. And it transcends all religion. Anybody can practice, develop a mindfulness-based uh, practice every day. Some point in their day where they find that stillness where they can sit, they can turn everything off and just drop in. It's hard to do, but it's essential. You know, I don't know if you know who Mark uh, Robert Waldman is. Waldman, he wrote How uh, Words Change Your Brain and How Enlightenment Mm -hmm. Changes Your Brain. He's a neuropsychologist um, at, uh, he's in LA, and he teaches wonderful courses and it's all on mindfulness in the brain and explaining how our emotions are automatic, but how we deal with them, not like you were saying, not to suppress them, not to be afraid of them, but to be with them, like you said, be mindful. And how we can, you know, he talks about resetting your brain by yawning. They have all this research that they've done that if you can't, you know, you can really yawn, you know, go, 
You could, for me, when I breathe in through my nose and breathe out through my mouth, that kind of forces me to yawn. And when you yawn, you reset your brain to a more calm state. So you can do that several times a day or just, you know, really focus on your breathing. So, you know, it's some stuff to become mindful is harder to meditate, you know, to, to the monkey mind. But, you know, there are certain things we can do during the day is just to just reset that brain. And it is fascinating because emotion, understanding our emotions and dealing them like what you're talking about is really the key to being able to manage ourselves, to self-manage and have that emotional intelligence, you know? So it's just fascinating. And happiness, Happiness. you know, and just feeling happy. Most people are are desperate to just feel happy and not knowing, okay, what are the tools? And not a lot is offered, actually, that leads to lasting happiness. And so this is, um, like you're saying, this is a way. And neuroscience, just to add on to that, the neuroscience community and Buddhism and meditation, they've found the love affair of studying because all these meditative practices affect the brain. And now they're proving it after, you know, that this just isn't like hippie talk here. Right, this is actual, right. this is ancient lineage and science. And it's now provable, which I, I think is really um Exciting for it, people it's who may very, be skeptical. It is so exciting to see that, you know, Harvard and Stanford yep. and all these wonderful institutions are are able to prove that mindfulness, you know, helps you to, you know, avoid per, uh, depression, helps you to manage weight. I mean, it helps you to have, you know, your heart be uh, in better shape and everything, you know, stop addictions. It's just amazing. So you're right. This, and I want to repeat the name of your book, A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment and Being in That Moment. And so we are talking and we're almost done talking with Spring Washam. And uh, so I wanted to share one of the questions that um, I know you talk about and you deal with in your book, and that is forgiveness. So why is that such an important aspect of cultivating the fierce heart? Yeah, and I know we only have a moment or two left here, but I think that the the practice of forgiveness is in itself radical because we're what we're saying is I'm willing to let go of carrying this any longer. You know, and, and, and essentially what we're doing is we're forgiving the confused mind. You know, when I for, practice forgiveness or I talk about forgiveness to the community, I say, here's all we're forgiving, delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's yeah. what we're forgiving. Anybody that would harm another being intentionally thinking that that could bring any good result is totally confused. And so... um so that's what we're forgiving. We're not so much forgiving a person. And also I teach a lot about forgiveness as a process. You know, it's a process and it's a noble process and it's really about freeing ourselves. That's what we're, we're letting go of that trauma that we carry, you know, moment to moment. Right. It's like so, that, that old adage that if you're unforgiving, it's like 
drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. <laughs> yes, and I write that in the chapter. Sure. I have that. Ex- yep, exactly. And that's really true, I've discovered for myself. There was another uh, analogy that I heard that you might want to pick up because I think it's really a great one. And I use it when I'm in mediation, especially when I'm doing divorce mediation. And Unforgiveness is like holding a cactus in your hand, and every time you think of that person, you squeeze your hand into that cactus. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I got it. I got you on that. I, and I think most people that know if they're filled with bitterness, it's painful. It is. Not a happy life. Yeah. No, so you don't forgive for the other person. You forgive for yourself. And, you, you, you know, you, that doesn't mean you have to beat yourself up and stay in a relationship with someone who's hurting you, but it means you just let it go. So, but I don't want anybody to let go of this book. It's wonderful. A fierce heart, finding strength, courage, and wisdom in any moment by beautiful spring Washam. I think you'll love this book and just give your website spring and it's time to go. Thank you. My website is www.springwasham.com. Well, Spring, thank you so much, and Happy New Year to you. I know it's going to be a wonderful New Year with your book out, okay? Thank you so much, Mari. Blessings to you. Okay, you too. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 